Good morning. Uh, my name is Joseph. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a privilege uh, to be standing before you this morning. Uh, it's been a while since I've done this. Uh, for those of you who might think I look like the other bald guy with a beard, I'm Joseph. I'm not Mitch, so um, hope that helps with the confusion. All right, um, let's get started. If you guys will pray with me this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. <clears throat> thank you for teaching us every time we open it. I pray this morning asking that you would do a supernatural work in our hearts through your Holy Spirit as we study your word. Help us this morning to be awestruck by your son, Jesus. He's the radiance of your glory, Father, and the exact imprint of your nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he's seated at your right hand in power, having completed the work of purifying us from our sin. And we praise you this morning for his work. And may He be magnified in our eyes today. Help us see Jesus, Father, for who He truly is. And help us glorify You for what He has done. Please help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, let's get started. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And uh, in our study of 16 verses this week, we are on the topic of fulfillment. Um, I'm excited about this one. Um, so let's dig in. Uh, this week's passage introduces us to the climax of God's story of redemptive history. And up to this point, we've seen the amazing story of redemption unfolding. We began our journey through history with the story of creation. In that story, we saw that God, the Creator, is King, and the universe He created is His good kingdom. And next, we saw that He made man. Um, however, man wasn't like the rest of God's creation. Mankind was made to bear the image of God, to multiply, and to spread the rule of God across the earth. But mankind became enticed by temptation to be like God and rebelled against God's righteous command. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, rejected God's good, good rule, thereby inserting the first tragedy into this epic story that you and I are a part of. Mankind's rebellion brought division between God and man. It brought death and it brought a curse that broke all of creation. In spite of this tragedy, though, God's plan was not thwarted. He made a promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. But in that crushing, the heel of the woman's seed would be bruised. And in making this promise, God unveiled His gospel to man for the first time. Next, we pass through the story of Abraham, a man who God called for his purpose of redemption. He was a pagan worshiper with a barren wife. However, God saved him by grace through faith and made a covenant with Abraham to make his offspring more numerous than the stars and to bless every family on earth through that offspring. In making this covenant, we saw God further revealing his plan to reverse the curse of the fall and use mankind to subdue the whole earth under his kingship. And we also saw, saw God tell Abraham that his offspring would suffer in slavery while God graciously was patient with the sin of a guilty people, thereby giving us further insight into God's plan for redemption when another innocent would come and suffer to pay for God's patience with guilty sinners. Then we saw Abraham's grandson Jacob and Jacob's sons. We saw Joseph, Jacob's favorite, suffer through betrayal by his brothers, false accusations from his slave master's wife, and then being forgotten by those he helped while he was in prison. And through all of this, Joseph rose to second in command over all of Egypt. And meanwhile, his older brother Judah was back at home dishonoring God and abusing the widow of his sons. And it would seem as though the promised one would likely be fulfilled through Joseph's lineage. 
I mean, after all, he, he was next to Pharaoh in ruling over Egypt. However, we came to see that all of Joseph's humiliation and subsequent exaltation served the purpose of preserving the undeserving lineage of Judah. And we saw in this that God chooses the least likely to accomplish His purpose by showing Himself to be wise and strong. And as Jacob lay on his deathbed, the blessing he spoke over Judah further revealed God's redemptive plan. God's kingdom would be established and the offspring of Judah would sit on that throne forever. However, Jacob's descendants, Judah's descendants, stayed in Egypt. And a new Pharaoh arose who didn't know the family of Joseph and placed Abraham's offspring into slavery just as God said would happen. And generation after generation called out to the Lord for 400 years. And it seemed as though God has forgotten His covenant. But when the time was right, God revealed His plan to liberate His people from slavery. God sent the destroyer to kill every firstborn human and animal in all of Egypt. But rather than destroy Abraham's offspring, God gave them a law to sacrifice a lamb and brush its blood over the doorways of their homes. And the shed blood of this Passover lamb caused the destroyer to to pass over God's people and instead execute judgment on the Egyptians only. And in so doing, the sacrificial, sacrificial lamb of the Passover delivered the Hebrews from their slavery. And God's institution of this Passover revealed exactly what His promised rescuer would do. This rescuer's blood would be shed to cover the sins of God's people and purchase their freedom, our freedom, from sin. After the exodus from Egypt, generations passed with no sign of the royal offspring of Judah who would reverse the curse and sit on the throne forever. But then a young shepherd boy from the tribe of Judah was anointed by a prophet to become the king of Israel. And this boy began to do some amazing things. He slayed a giant and defeated the enemies of God's people. And although he had been anointed king, David refused to depose the king then seated on Israel's throne. David waited patiently on the Lord's timing. His trust in the Lord seemed absolute. When David finally ascended to the throne, it seemed as though he could be the promised king. God even promises David that the kingdom of his offspring would last forever. The story of David seemed primed and ready for the king to have a final battle to destroy sin and reverse the curse. But we saw David fell. He gave in to the lust of his eyes just as our first parents did in the garden and his sin gave birth to death. But God was not thwarted by David's sin. His plan was still marching forward. For many generations, kings would rise and fall on the throne of Judah. Each of them, beginning with David, creates a longing for the true king who would destroy sin and death and reverse the curse of the fall. The serpent crusher would come. And as the generations of kings rose and fell, we saw that God raised up prophets to speak on His behalf to kings and peasants alike. The prophets declared the good news of the coming king and kingdom while also pronouncing judgment on the sin of man. God further revealed His plan for redemption as His Spirit moved through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah wrote of a servant who would come and take upon himself the punishment for our sin. And this servant would suffer greatly and die. And this seems like a far cry from the eternal king who would bless all the nations. Yet Isaiah further showed us that in the sufferings of the servant, the servant would be raised to life and be given the nations as his offspring because he had covered their sin. And for those who had ears to hear, 
the promised king was beginning to look a lot like the Passover lamb. God promised to defeat sin through the suffering servant. But what about death? We next saw God reveal His plan to defeat death once and for all on our stop in Ezekiel. Judah had been conquered and it seemed as though all was lost. The prophet Ezekiel was given a vision by the Lord to further reveal the good news. God promised through this vision to breathe His Spirit into the dead and raise them to new life. The sacrifice of the suffering servant would not only destroy sin, it would also reverse the curse by robbing death of its power. The grave would have no authority over the coming king or his people. And this message was great news to all living in the curse and under the shadow of death. Our last stop took us back to Isaiah. And there we saw God's promised redemption was not for His people only. God would also restore creation itself. And speaking through Isaiah, God promised to remake the earth. God had always cared for His creation and breaking the curse would not be complete without earth being restored to Eden. He promised that the former things, namely sin, pain, and death, would be banished and remembered no more. The promises made to Abraham, Judah, David, and all those generations would be fulfilled as the suffering servant broke the curse. That's the story so far. We've seen God make promises and faithfully bring about gradual fulfillment. Yet something else happened between our last signpost and today's stop. There was silence. God didn't speak to His people for centuries. The period of time between the end of the Old Testament and the events recorded in the Gospels was long and quiet. Israel and Judah were both conquered and exiled. A remnant remained in Judah, but it seemed as though the wonderful promises of redemption had been forgotten by God. Roughly 400 years passed with Judah's royal line in bondage to other nations. You can't help but see the similarities to the Hebrews' bondage in Egypt. And you can almost feel the grief as the remnant of Judah thinks God has forgotten. But God didn't forget and He always keeps His promises. And we see the faithfulness of the Lord to continue the redemption story in today's passage with the appearance of an oddly dressed man named John. John lived in the wilderness of Judah eating locusts and wearing camel skins. But his odd dress and diet were not the point. Rather, they were byproducts of John's spirit-driven singular focus. John preached and his message was simple yet profound. He declared, prepare the way of the Lord. He baptized many. And one of those he baptized was a carpenter from Bethlehem, a descendant of Judah named Jesus. And while baptizing Jesus, the Father speaks from heaven and declares Jesus to be His Son. Now at this point, all the former promises we've looked at should be coming to your mind. Jesus, descendant of Abraham, descendant of Judah, descendant of David, is now on the scene. God has declared that Jesus is His Son. Something grand is on the horizon. Can you feel the energy rising in the story now? The climax of the redemption story has arrived. So let's read today's passage. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says, Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So as we dig in today's, into today's passage about fulfillment, let's remember how we need to approach the Scriptures. What do we see? What, do we, what does it mean? And how do we apply it? So we've got three observations today. The first one is this. 
that the arrest of John serves God's good purposes in the story of redemption. We can't really jump into this passage without looking at a little bit of the story of John because it, it starts with John being arrested. So what happened before to lead to this point? And as we noted earlier, God had not spoken to his people through a prophet in more than 400 years at the time of today's passage. And during that time, God's people endured the conquest of several empires. And at the time John the Baptist came onto the scene, the Roman Empire had the promised land firmly in its grasp. The people longed for God's anointed king to free them from foreign rule and lead them into the golden age of the eternal reign of the promised king of Judah. Several similarities can be drawn between the people of God here and the period of time during which the Hebrews suffered in slavery in Egypt prior to the Exodus. The obvious similarity there is the time. Um, The Egyptian bondage lasted a little more than 400 years. And at the time of today's passage, what remained of the 12 tribes of Israel had been repeatedly conquered for four centuries. After 400 years of silence in, uh, in Egypt, God sent Moses with a message of deliverance for his people. And then here, after centuries of silence, God sends John. And what John does is he declares that deliverance is coming. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, Matthew describes John the Baptist this way. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Likewise, John uses this same description to answer the religious leaders' questions regarding his identity in John chapter 1, verse 23. These passages clearly establish John's role as prophet with a message from the Lord. John is God's messenger to his people. However, his message is not exactly the same as all the prophets that have come before. The prophets who came before John spoke of the fulfillment of God's promises in the future. The message John delivered to the people was immediate. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, uh, Matthew quotes John as he warns people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Gospel of John further recounts the immediacy of John's message in uh, verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1. And there John further answers the religious leader's questions about his identity. And in his response, John points out that the greater one, Jesus, whose path John is preparing, is already standing among them. So John's message is of immediate deliverance. And this message resonates with the people. We see in Mark chapter 1, verse 5, uh, just a few verses before today's passage, that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, John, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, while there's no doubt that some of those people being baptized were led there by the Holy Spirit to be baptized because um, they had been called to belief in the good news of the gospel, there were some there Um, whose presence uh, was warranted because they wanted the coming king to bless them in his reign. And they were expecting John to be a herald of an earthly kingdom where they could share in some of the power. We see this in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 to 10, where John condemns the attitudes of the religious leaders as they came to be baptized. He called them a brood of vipers, seeking to avoid the wrath to come, and warned them to bear the fruit of repentance. Now, although John delivers this message of the immediacy of the promised king's arrival, he's arrested and thrown into prison. And as this week's passage begins, verses 14 and 15, John, the prophetic forerunner of the promised king, is arrested. As we know from the remainder of the story of the Gospels, 
John never sees freedom again. He's executed and passes into obscurity like so many of the prophets before him, save for what's accounted of his life in the Scriptures. We see here, though, that in spite of his arrest, John understands that Jesus is the point. It's not him. Now, if you were looking for an earthly king to free you from foreign rule and usher in a golden age for your nation, the arrest and subsequent execution of your deliverer's messenger doesn't bode well for your expectations. However, John's expectations, as we will see, point to his ultimate satisfaction and joy in the promised Redeemer. John's understanding of Jesus' arrival is that Jesus is to be the suffering servant foretold by Isaiah and the defeater of death foretold by Ezekiel. The day after John baptizes Jesus, which we see that story earlier in Mark 1, um, John spoke these words in John chapter 1, verses 29 to 33. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is He of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John's statement here that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world directly links Jesus back to Isaiah 53. And John's statement that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit evidences John's understanding that Jesus will bring the new life promised in Ezekiel 36. John's expectation of Jesus translates into the humbleness of John's life. Now on a personal level, John's diet, and dress are indicative of a heart seeking God's kingdom above all else. Now, this is not prescriptive for us to dress and eat like John. Um, However, the attitude of his heart and the trajectory of his life are examples to us as we've been commanded by Christ to seek His kingdom first. Now, on a ministry level, uh, John doesn't really care that more people end up flocking to Jesus than himself. When John's disciples become concerned that Jesus, who John baptized, is now baptizing more people than John and drawing all of John's crowd to himself in the Gospel of John chapter 3, John joyfully responds that Jesus must increase and he must decrease. John gets that he's not the point. Jesus is. So this also means that John's suffering is not pointless. John's thrown into prison and ultimately executed. His purpose was to prepare the way of the Lord. That purpose, as indicated by John's removal from the stage, was completed. In Matthew chapter 11, we see John struggling with doubt because of his suffering. John sends messengers to Jesus asking if Jesus really is this promised one. And Jesus responds in verse 4 of Matthew 11 that the promises of God are being fulfilled and that those who trust in Him are blessed. And we never get a response from John to Jesus' statement. I believe the absence of a response from John is due to the fact that John believes and rests in what Jesus says. John joyfully endures his remaining suffering and death because God has kept and is keeping His promises in Jesus. This leads us to our second observation today. 
Observation number two is that the time is fulfilled. The course of redemptive history has been marching to this point that we're at today. Jesus, the suffering servant and royal offspring of Judah, has arrived. And this is great news because it means that all of the promises made beforehand in the Scriptures are now coming to pass. Yet, to the disappointment of those looking for the promised king to burst onto the scene and forcefully establish a new earthly kingdom for Judah and Israel, Jesus arrives much like the prophets before him, preaching a message from the Father. That message, as Mark records, is called the Gospel of God. The Gospel of God is a a proclamation of the promises and work of God through history to redeem fallen creation. In Mark 1.14, Jesus comes onto the scene proclaiming this good news. Um, I would say that that message is the foundation of Jesus' ministry. It's, It's how He goes to work. And to really understand what this proclamation means, we need to do a little more work to define the phrase, the Gospel of God. Mark does not give us an express definition in this passage. However, there is within the phrase an implicit implicit meaning that I think we can extrapolate. Mark says that Jesus proclaimed this gospel saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In recording Jesus' statement, Mark is saying that this is the content of the gospel of God that Jesus is proclaiming. This means that the gospel of God is the good news that God has fulfilled all the promises He made beforehand through the prophets as revealed in Scripture concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ to redeem God's people and restore creation through Jesus' sinless suffering, death, resurrection, and subsequent glory. This definition is kind of a synthesis of the meaning that Scripture applies to this phrase, the gospel of God. We see it again in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where Paul uses the exact phrase to describe the thing for which he has been set apart as an apostle. In verses 1 to 6 of Romans 1, Paul describes the gospel of God. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for, purpose calls there, the gospel of God. Then he defines it. Which he promised beforehand, the gospel, through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning, this is what the Gospel is about, His Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith, for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. These passages show us a couple of things about the gospel of God. First, the gospel is presently fulfilled in Jesus. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God made a promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And although the woman's seed would be victorious, God did promise that the woman's offspring would suffer. And each signpost along the way these past 11 weeks, we've seen more and more of God's promise of redemption being revealed. And the progressive nature of God's revelation of the plan for redemption left His people always wanting more, always looking to the future. And I hope these past 11 weeks you've kind of got a sense of that. And generation after generation longed for the day when God's promises would become a present reality. So when Jesus burst onto the scene declaring that the time is fulfilled, 
That one statement alone carries massive implications. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrews describes how God spoke to His people throughout history. In verse 1, we're told that formerly, God spoke in various times and ways through the prophets. And this is consistent with what we've seen each of the last 11 weeks as we've studied through these 16-verse signposts. We've still got some more to go, but this is where we're at today. However, in verse 2 of chapter 1, the author of Hebrews draws a distinction between how God spoke formerly and how He spoke through Jesus. Verse 2 says, But in these last days... So the word but there is drawing some contrast to how God has formerly spoke. In these last days... He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Now note the phrase in verse 2, He has spoken. It's, It's in the perfect tense. And the grammar here is important because the Father is speaking, the Father speaking to His people is completed. There's no more revelation. In Jesus, the Father has fully and finally revealed His plan for redemption. So this means that Jesus' proclamation that the time is fulfilled is the very proclamation of the Father that the wait for redemption is over. The season of waiting for the suffering servant to fulfill the law and atone for sin is complete. Redemption from sin's penalty and freedom from sin's bondage has come. The time is fulfilled. Second, we see that the gospel of God is a proclamation that the kingdom of darkness has been invaded. Jesus' gospel proclamation doesn't end with a declaration that God's promises are now being fulfilled. Jesus also declares that God's kingdom has arrived. And this is the pronouncement of God that the broken system of the world that's been corrupted by the fall is now being reclaimed by its rightful ruler. And the simple statement that the kingdom of God is at hand is loaded with weight. And the statement reveals several more things about God's story of redemption. First, we see that Jesus is the rightful ruler of all creation. Um, Going back to Hebrews 1, we see that Jesus sat down on the throne of heaven after completing His work on earth. He is and always will be exalted above all else. And the declaration that God's kingdom is at hand is notice to everyone and everything that the true king is here. It's also a warning to the king's opposition that they're defeated. This means that the dominion of Christ over all things has arrived. In the garden, our first parents were told to fill the earth and subdue it. As divine image bearers, this would have placed the whole earth under the dominion of God's kingdom with His image bearer representatives ruling as His proxies. However, man rebelled before subduing the earth. So the arrival of God's kingdom here in Mark chapter 1 is the undoing by Jesus of man's failure to subdue the earth. Colossians 1, 15-20 says of Jesus that He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through Him and for Him. So, Jesus, as the true divine image bearer, as Colossians 1, 15 tells us, He's the image of the invisible God. As the true divine image bearer, Jesus... His subduing of the earth is perfect and His reign is to be full and final. We also see that the blessing of all the families of the earth has arrived. The arrival of the kingdom of God means that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be called into that kingdom as citizens. This is good news. And the promised king has also established his throne. 
The failures of all the kings that we've seen before have pointed to this king who will not fail and whose kingdom will last forever. The angel Gabriel, when he appeared to Mary in Luke chapter 1, had this to say about Jesus' arrival. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Gabriel's statement was itself a direct quote from Isaiah's prophecy about Jesus from Isaiah 9. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he is saying this promise has been fulfilled. The king has come and his throne has been established. We also see from this declaration of the gospel that the the restoration of all things has arrived. Jesus' eternal reign as king is ushering in the promise promise of the new heavens and new earth where the former things will be remembered no more. The arrival of the kingdom of God means that sin, death, and the grave are defeated and that justice and righteousness will reign. Now it's important to note here um, that although Jesus is declaring that the world system opposed to his kingdom is on the way out the door, Jesus makes this statement, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, before he goes to the cross and rises again to break the curse. So when he proclaimed the gospel of God at the outset of his ministry, Jesus is basically calling his shot. Like a home run king that steps to the plate and points his bat to the center field wall to show where he's going to take the pitch, Jesus declared his victory from the outset. That's pretty cool. This proclamation of the gospel was powerful. And the pronouncement that the fulfillment of God's promises to redeem and restore had arrived carried a powerful effect. This leads us to our last observation. The power of the gospel. It's a powerful message. And the good news takes dead people and makes them alive. It takes those with no purpose and gives them a mission to pursue with reckless abandon. It's a message that changes lives. Now, if you've attended Three Rivers for any length of time, at some point you should have heard someone say up here the phrase, the indicative comes before the imperative. When we look at Mark 1, 14 to 15, this statement really helps us understand the significance of the command Jesus makes in verse 15. Now, if you just heard me say the indicative comes before the imperative and you have no clue what I mean, let me try to explain it in another way. It means that there is some truth or fact that forms the basis for obedience to a commandment. So today's passage is the perfect example of this axiom. Jesus declares two truths that make up the good news of the gospel of God. First, the time for fulfillment of all Scripture has promised about Jesus has arrived. And secondly, Jesus has established His kingdom. Now these truths, or indicatives, dictate a response of obedience to Jesus' command. The command Jesus gives us in Mark 1.15 is to repent and believe in the gospel. This command has two components, repent and believe. Jesus' statement here, I don't believe, is a prescription for the order of obedience. Um, I do believe, however, based on a close reading of other passages in Scripture, like Ephesians chapter 2 specifically, the latter, belief, is what occurs first, and repentance is fruit of that obedience. That's why John commands the religious leaders in Matthew 3 to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
However, for the sake of ease through this passage, we're just going to look at the components in the command and the order Jesus gave them. So repentance is a turning away from one thing to something else of greater value. It's a rejection of sin in favor of Christ. Particularly in the context of this passage today, it's a rejection of the kingdom of this world and submission to the rule and reign of Christ over all things. A rejection of Jesus' rule as God and King is what started this whole mess in the garden. Therefore, to repent is to turn away from anything we exalt to the place of God and instead turn our worship to Jesus Christ. If the statements Jesus made on the front end of this command to repent and obey are true, if all of God's promises really are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus, and if Jesus' eternal kingdom has arrived, then the only proper response is to repent of our idolatry and worship this true King. And if we fail to repent, then we're not obeying the gospel of God and we're subjects of His wrath. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, Jesus also commands us here in Mark 1.15 to believe in the gospel. Earlier, we defined the gospel as the good news that God has fulfilled all the promises He made beforehand through the prophets as revealed in Scripture concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ to redeem God's people and restore creation through Jesus' sinless suffering, death, resurrection, and subsequent glory. So when Jesus commands us to believe the gospel, or believe in the gospel, this is what He's commanding us to believe. This is why Paul describes his gospel work uh, as seeking to bring about the obedience of faith in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Jesus' command in Mark 1.15 is to trust that God's promises are true in Jesus and that Jesus has established His eternal kingdom. Now, this message of the gospel is not one that we're inclined to believe naturally. Ephesians chapter 2 describes our belief in the gospel as a process of our hearts being brought from death to life by God's supernatural work, not by our own effort. Ephesians 2 further states that even the faith to believe the gospel is a gift given to us by God. It's clear now why I earlier said that belief or faith comes before repentance. So a repentant heart exists because of faith in the truth of the gospel which has been given to us by God. It's awesome. <laughs> Jesus' command to repent and believe in the gospel in Mark 1.15 is absolutely connected with Jesus' proclamation of the gospel. The truth of the gospel requires a response. However, if our hearts are not called from death to life by the power of the gospel message, we're never going to obey in repentant belief. The great news is that the message of the gospel has the power to raise dead people to life. Romans 1.16, Paul speaks of the power of this message. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's another promise that we can bank on. So, how do we apply this passage today? We've, we've looked at these observations. What do we take away from it? And, and how, how do we live in light of it? Um, I've got several of these. First, like John the Baptist, we need to remember that all of our pleasure and all of our suffering is not the point. We are not the point. Jesus is the point. 
John served the Lord his entire life. I mean, you look all the way back in the beginning. John's worshiping in the womb. And the entire course of his life is to prepare the way for the king and his kingdom. He was the forerunner preparing the way for Christ. Yet in spite of that, John was wrongfully imprisoned and put to death. But John trusted the Lord and rejoiced that he could be marginalized so that Jesus' fame could grow. And like John, we must trust the Lord's plan. We must trust the Lord's plan and purpose, knowing the kingdom of this world is not our home. And we should also imitate John's reckless abandon in his pursuit of the kingdom of God. His entire life and ministry was focused on the advancement of God's kingdom. And as disciples of Jesus, everything we do should also be seasoned by the pursuit of seeing the reign of Jesus expand to everything we have influence over. That's why we talk so much about domains here at Three Rivers. We understand that all of society is made up of domains and that God has equipped each of us uniquely to engage in those domains with the gospel. This fundamentally changes how we approach the pursuit of the kingdom of God. You don't have to be a professional preacher. I'm not. I'm a professional lawyer. You don't have to be a professional missionary to engage domains to advance God's kingdom. Whether you're a plumber, a waitress, an accountant, a school teacher, look for ways you can preach the gospel and make disciples as you use the gifts God has given you. It's a message of freedom. And the cool thing about this is that Jesus has said the kingdom of God is at hand. And that means that the advance of the kingdom to conquer every domain of society, to bring them under the rule of Jesus, is going to happen. It's a foregone conclusion. So we can take heart. Our mission can't fail. This frees us to imitate John's passion for bringing the kingdom of God to bear on society. So not only do we need to imitate John, since John's not the point, Jesus is, we also need to imitate Jesus by preaching the gospel of God not just a gospel of salvation. It's evident from today's passage that Jesus' gospel proclamation was not simply telling people how to avoid hell. We say here often that the good news of the gospel is not good news without the bad news. So people need to hear that they can be saved, but they also need to hear what they need to be saved from and why they need salvation. We talk about the gospel here as being summed up in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And when Jesus proclaimed that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, He's really proclaiming these four things. The story of redemption and its fulfillment in Him. So that means we should work at trying to clearly communicate this message. I think we should be able to share the entirety of the gospel message in less than five minutes. And when I say the entirety of the gospel message, I mean creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. You don't have to be a pastor, missionary, or some kind of special forces Christian as though that existed to preach the gospel. Here's an example of what I mean. I'm going to give you a brief summary of the gospel. God, through His eternal Son, Jesus, created everything and it was perfect. Man was the pinnacle of that creation and was made to rule the earth as God's image bearers. However, Mankind disobeyed God's command, separating us from fellowship with God due to this sin, this disobedience, and bringing the curse of our rebellion on all of creation. 
Man became a slave to sin and death. And that slavery and death passed to all of us. But God promised to send a Redeemer to pay for our sin and break the curse of sin and death, thereby restoring all of creation. And in the fullness of time, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became a man, being born of a virgin, and lived a sinless life. Although He never sinned, He was put to death to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. After three days in the grave, He rose again to eternal life, breaking the curse of sin and death for all who would believe in His name. Then He ascended to heaven, where He sits on the throne as King. And He sent His Holy Spirit to awaken to life all those whom He purchased on the cross from every people and nation. And when His gospel has gone forth to all peoples, He will return and restore all things to perfection as they were at the beginning. And then He will live as King for all eternity among those who have believed in Him. And sin and death will be no more. That's the message of the Gospel of God. So in imitating Jesus to proclaim this message, we also need to trust that the Gospel's powerful. And therefore, not only do we need to imitate Jesus in proclaiming the Gospel, we need to imitate Jesus in inviting people to repent and believe. Romans 1.16, Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It's a supernatural message. Ephesians 2 tells us it raises the dead. And therefore, we must trust that the Holy Spirit will use our obedience to proclaim the gospel and invite others to repent and believe to resurrect hearts to new life in God's kingdom. We don't have that power to raise the dead. It belongs to God alone. But as we're faithful to preach the good news, God will do the supernatural work of giving dead people new life in Christ just like He promised. It's what He does and we can trust Him to do it. If you haven't repented and believed in the Gospel, this is where this applies to you. Repent and believe in the Gospel. You've heard it proclaimed to you today. If you've never put your trust in Jesus and repented of the worship of other things, we are inviting you to do so today. Be reconciled to God. As Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Grab someone that you know that walks with Jesus or go speak to one of the pastors in the back. We'd be happy to talk with you about believing the gospel and repenting. Jesus is inviting you to new life. And lastly, let's worship Jesus for fulfilling the promises of God in establishing His earthly kingdom. Psalm 147.1 says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. Let's be a worshiping people today. The time has been fulfilled. Jesus' kingdom is here. we got to, we got a lot to celebrate, y'all. Let's pray. Father, Your Gospel is good news. And we rejoice in that good news this morning. I ask, Father, that this powerful Gospel would do its work in our hearts today. I pray for those here that have not believed in Your Gospel and repented of the rebellion. I ask, Father, that You would call them by Your Spirit today from death to life. For those of us who have trusted in Your promises, Prepare us to respond to Your Word in worship. Help us to sing today as a joyful people. 
Father, we have every reason to praise You because all that You have promised has been accomplished in Jesus. The promises have been fulfilled. Jesus broke the curse of sin and death. And He's established His kingdom and He's sitting on its throne as, as King. All this, Father, has been done to the praise of Your glory and for our everlasting joy. Help our singing today to be an acceptable offering to You. We pray these things because of Jesus' work and in His name. Amen.